I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is respectability, and we're joined by Dr. Tara Green. She's an award-winning teacher, mentor, scholar who has degrees in English from Louisiana State University and Dillard University. She has over 25 years of teaching experience. She's currently professor and former director of African-American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Her areas of research include black gender studies, African-American autobiographies and fiction, African women's literature, African-American parent-child relationships, and African-Americans in the South. She's published numerous articles, four books, and is the editor of two. We talk a little bit more about her most recent books, the first being Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, and See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure in the Interwar Era. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. So we are so excited to have our next guest, Dr. Tara Green. She is a professor at UNC Greensboro. She's an author, and she speaks directly to the topic of respectability. I also noticed that she's a storyteller, but I want you to, first of all, be welcome here. But second of all, I'd love to hear more about your story before we get into what you do. Um, I always ask our guests, specifically our African-American guests, who are you? Who is Tara Green? Well, thank you for having me this afternoon. My story is that I was raised by Southern parents. My mother's from North Louisiana and my dad is from rural Mississippi. And they met each other in the suburbs of New Orleans, got married in the late 1960s, moved to a little place called Waukegan, Illinois, where I was born, missed the South as so many people did. And so they did the reverse migration and returned to the New Orleans area where I was raised and where I consider myself to be from because that was my greatest influence. But how did I know about their lives? How did I get a sense of Black life, particularly in the South? And it was from my mother and her side of the family. I learned from my father's silences. He did not talk about his childhood, even though I would hear um, certain stories from his uh, siblings. My His parents had 12 children, and my mother's side of the family, they had nine. But the people that I would mostly hear from would be my mother and her uncle. And they would talk about what it was like growing up poor in rural, in the rural part of North Louisiana during the Jim Crow era. And I was um, highly blessed to hear those stories. I would eventually realize that I was inspired then to become an English major. And of course, now I am a scholar of African-American literature. That is so powerful and resonates deeply. Thank you for sharing that. You have a book that was released in January, correct? Mm -hmm. And another one that's going to be coming out pretty soon. 
But the book, Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Tell us about that. Alice Dunbar Nelson was born in New Orleans in 1875, and she died in Philadelphia in 1935. And during her her lifetime, during that period between 1875 and 1935, she married three times. She had relationships with women during marriage and in between marriages. But she would be known mostly as the woman who had married Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He was her first husband. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar, for those who do not know, was the man of the time. He was the first Black man to um, really get paid for his craft as a poet. He was also a novelist. And he was very well loved amongst white people who were patrons of the art, as well as highly revered by Black people. He was from Ohio and he would return there where he died. But she was so much more than his husband. And I wanted to make sure that I told that story. So before she met him in 1895, she had begun to publish her own work as a poet and a short story writer. Uh, her, Her inspiration was the New Orleans area. And she became a member of the Black Club Women's Movement. She was a member, a founding member of the Phyllis Wheatley Club of New Orleans. And those clubs were committed to advancing the race. They were first generation of children born to Black people who had been enslaved. And so there was a lot of work to do to work towards equality and making sure that Black people were educated and Black women and girls were not exploited. So she became a part of that. She was also an editorial writer, so she would be known for her work in the newspaper industry. And these were all things that she continued to do until she died in 1935 in Philadelphia. And it says here that Miss Dunbar Nelson, her father, her mother is was was formerly enslaved. She was born mm-hmm. in 1875, um, and she had her father was of questionable identity. Can mm-hmm. You talk about that. Well, it's part of the respectability narrative. We are not very clear on who her father was because there were some name changes. So we know that his last name was Moore. Her mother would take on the name Moore. Her um, sister very likely had the same uh, father as she. So they and her, her sister was a year or so older than she was. When we look at the census records, we cannot find that there was ever Mr. Moore who lived with the family. And for the most part, the mother always lived with her children. They lived in at least four different cities. So it's easy to look at those census records and get a sense of who was living at the home over a number of years. And we never find that there was a Moore. And suddenly he sort of disappears in the way in which she becomes, Patricia Moore becomes a widow. So um, when did he die? When was the funeral? Where's the obituary? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so so that's the mystery. Who exactly was this person? Mm-hmm. And he was probably a white man. So um Right. Again, respectability. What sort of arrangement did this woman who was probably unmarried have with this white man in New Orleans? Well, and we know that there's all kinds of stories of really black women having to survive during that period and coming out of enslavement, having been raped, sexually abused and being forced into the these arrangements. A lot of times 
current society would or in culture would like to romanticize a lot of these stories and see them as like interracial dating, but that is not what most of them were because when you're thinking about African Americans coming out of enslavement and free to nothing, free to more enslavement, people did what they had to do to survive. And they, you know, had already experienced it, experienced the trauma, the trauma of of enslavement and carried that with them, that generation for the rest of their lives and into and then it being passed on to their kids, to their children. You speak mm-hmm. can you speak to that? Well, that's the thing is that we don't know when I say that there was an arrangement, surely she benefited from having an individual who would be the father of her two daughters. She probably benefited financially because you don't make such arrangements um, unless you're going to get something out of it. Mm -hmm. But it was a choice because there were Black men that she could have been in, um, that she could have coupled with. Mm -hmm. And so um, we can imagine that this was a part of her survival in a city. Mm -hmm. That experience was very new to her because she was born enslaved and it was only because of 1865. And in fact, her, the person who owned her took her and um, the people that he so-called owned. I I just... um, that language always bothers me. Absolutely. But um, that they claim to own to Texas to avoid doing what the Emancipation Proclamation said that um, yep. that enslaved people had been freed. And so he ran off and then he eventually told them. And so when they get to Louisiana and she goes to New Orleans, I imagine that this woman was not very sure of what she was going to do. And so it was not unusual for women of color, of African descent to couple with white men of affluence. They they had affluence because of their race, but some of them had affluence because of their class and genealogy. They may have been born into families that have property and wealth and so on. And so she clearly connects with one of those people. How that happens and what that looked like, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But that would help us to understand why his name and his story is not one that is kept, discussed, and made public mm-hmm. when I, all any of us, look at her archives and, and we just don't see anything about this man. And it's interesting, you spoke about how the man who enslaved her mother, there was a great like white flight to Texas to kind of get away from the emancipation. And it was like a migration, a great migration in itself. But people wanted to hold on to their system of enslavement. Um, I had just read about that a few months ago and I was just astounded. But I want to know what drew you to her story? How did you, how did you begin to, like, when, when were you introduced to her story and what intrigued you? What drew you in? And even your writing process, how you wrote her story and the emotional labor that that went into it? Well, um, I guess it was a little bit of fate. I, um, as I say to people, I met Alice Dunbar Nelson when I was an English graduate student, uh, an English student, undergraduate major at Dillard University. 
I was introduced to her short story. I read. And for those who don't know, Dillard University is a historically Black university. It's a liberal arts focus in New Orleans. Yes. So I had grown up in the area. I had not heard of her. But then I got to that school and was assigned to read one of her short stories in an American literature class. And in the little biography that we are given in such anthologies, it was made clear that she was born in New Orleans, that she had attended straight college, which I knew had merged with another institution to become Dillard University, and that she was an English teacher. Mm-hmm. So there was so much that resonated with me because I knew that I was going to become a literature professor at that time. And here I was at her alma mater and she was an ancestor and that we had traveled some of the same streets. So, you know, as as my career would continue every now and again, I would teach her. But then there were questions that I had in my mind. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, I would find out that her collection of papers had been sold to the University of Delaware. And I went to the University of Delaware to, to see what was there. And when they brought out all of these boxes, I looked and I said, I have a project here because I knew that a biography had not been written, that there had not been a major study on her. And I felt like I was in the right position, given my background, to do that work. And it would become a 10-year journey. Mm -hmm. That is powerful. So let's talk more about the respectability aspect and how does respectability play out then versus now? Well, respectability was extremely important to these women. So I look at the work of another Black woman, scholar, historian, Evelyn Brooks Hickenbotham, who talks about how the politics of respectability was used and how these women saw themselves, um, how they defined themselves as respectable, and how they insisted that they be treated with respect. And as I read more about Alice and her, and I call her Alice simply because her her she was married three times, her name changes four or five times. Right. But um Alice was a woman who held tight to respectability, but she defined what that meant to her. And I think that even now when I, I talk to students about this, I mean, we've been, I teach three courses in, in two of them, particularly in our Black women in the U.S. course, and I teach a course called Black Pleasure. We talk about respectability and we look at that theory of Dr. Brooks Hickenbotham, but we also talk about its relevancy now. And so what they come to realize is that the way in which the term is used in society doesn't necessarily represent how Black people used it to advance um, themselves as activists during that period. Because activism, performance, and expectation in this fight for equality was something that worked hand in hand. And so we still see that today when we find ourselves in trouble or find ourselves in certain positions, we expect to be treated with respect, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's what those people expected. So, I mean, I, I think it's a long conversation that may look differently now, 
Mm-hmm. But I certainly do not look back historically at how those women reacted to the world around them and say, I wish that they had done it differently because I, I don't. I get right. it. Right. I understand it. And so what do you, when you think about respectability, there's respectability as far as dignity and humanity bestowed upon image bearers, people. And then there's the aspect of respectability politics. And I want people to understand, you know, what your book is about and what you're speaking to versus this other terminology. Can you flesh that out for our listeners? What I'm talking about is very similar to what um, historian um, Brooks Hickenbotham is talking about, which is this idea of self-definition. And so another reading for the syllabus would be looking at Patricia Hill Collins' work when she talks about self-definition as well and Black feminist thought. That's what these women were doing. Black Mm -hmm. people were doing it during the the New Negro era and that, that terminology, New Negro, comes up in the late 1800s. And so for those people who don't don't know what that is, I would uh, tell you to look at Margaret Murray Washington's work. You can easily find some of her speeches online. And so then she is talking about how do we uplift ourselves through our behavior and through our actions and working together to improve our communities. So it's all about me. It's all about the me as a part of a collective. It's all about our. And I think that is that is really important. This is something that I point out to my students is these Black people were actually looking at themselves and within their communities and relying on themselves for their uplift. They weren't saying, if we do this, then white people, that's not what they were saying. They were not looking at themselves in relation to or in comparison to or in contrast to white people. So I think that is really important for us to really understand that Black people did love themselves during this period. Yes. And so the activism that we see expressed, even in how they present themselves in public, had to do with the fact that they did love themselves and they loved other Black people. So so activism becomes a movement of love, of Black love. Yes, and Black self-love. So it's interesting because absolutely it makes sense that after this period of enslavement where people were owned as property and bred, that there's a freedom to finally be able to think of yourself autonomously and to define who you are, where before you couldn't get married, you couldn't, you know, without permission, or you may have been, a, been, been required to be married to several different people or be married to someone, but still have to be be forced to be with someone else or be separated from families, have children at one plantation, children at another plantation, and they move you, you know, way several states over. And so now this time, this comes this time where just as important as it is to have property and occupation jobs, it's equally important to be able to say, who who, who am I? And, and I get to define myself because no one you know, is overshadowing me or telling me who I had to be. Even though they're all doing that that under the confines of Jim Crow. And so they're still, 
you know, oppression, a system of oppression, racism, and abuse that's happening. But it's amazing that so much flourishing happened with the Black community immediately after enslavement. You see these historically Black colleges and universities and these other schools, elementary, you know, high school, middle schools that come forth, businesses, patents, um, invention, like there's like this whole renaissance of activity, literature that happens post-enslavement that speaks to the ingenuity and just the fortitude of a people who have been enslaved. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's, you know, part of those politics that they are trying to push forward. So what is it that will help us to advance as a people? What should our platform be? What should we advocate for? What should we agitate for? So fighting for part, part of that renaissance wasn't just the cultural arts, but it was also education was extremely important because Black folks have been denied that yes. uh, almost from the beginning. Yeah, And it, I mean, just because you were white didn't mean you were educated either. Right. People who were affluent tended to be the ones who had the best of education. If we remember, for example, you know, University of Cambridge, Harvard was, um, I think about Phyllis Wheatley speaking and writing that point to those white guys at Harvard. Mm -hmm. So, and that was in the 1700s. So, um, so as education becomes more accessible to people in the country and as black people of the South who have been denied access and in parts of the North as well, mm -hmm. one of the things that they know that they have to concentrate on is building institutions of higher education that will train teachers, that will train nurses, lawyers, and who am I leaving out the doctors? Those were the four areas where these higher educations that we now call historically black colleges and universities, because they weren't historical at that time, those were the areas that they knew that if they wanted to advance the race, that they had to have people who were trained in those areas. Saving the black family. So yeah. now that people aren't divided up and, and they have a say-so about where they can stay and that they can make decisions about their children, saving the Black family became extremely important. Yes. And so educating those little children, but also having lessons on what are the best ways to keep out disease, cleanliness. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then you have to have access to clean water um, and clothing and and safe jobs. So all of those things work together and, and, and Black women were at the forefront. I, yes. I, I just, I, you know, I, I tell my students sometimes they're like, well, but I thought Black men, well, where were the Black men? Were they organizing? Yes, but the Black women club members were mm -hmm. the ones who were organizing and networking and meeting locally, but also leveraging resources and meeting nationally and coming up with platforms mm -hmm. to advance the race and, and to insist that certain things be done so that that could happen and happen um, properly and in order, as, as we can put it. Well, in Black women, the Black woman suffrage movement that is oftentimes not spoken of and is overshadowed by 
the white feminist movement of Susan B. Anthony. We don't talk about, we, we just did an episode on Ida B. Wells, but we don't talk about Ida B. Wells. And we don't talk about how even the black Greek, Greek letter organizations, the sororities, when you talk about the clubs, I'm a member of Zeta, how those organizations played such a tremendous role in the black woman suffragist movement and all of them were were founded during that during that time period and just the work that they did amongst themselves to further the work of justice and education and I- identity and self-worth yeah certainly so Alice Dunbar Nelson was one of those women and she was one who was because of the name Dunbar so before she marries her second husband, she is one of those who is asked to go out and give speeches. She was very well known for her, her ability to speak in public and to, to, to get um, you know, the, the descriptions that they provide of her in newspapers and, and, and a former student of hers writes about in his biography that she was just this tall woman who would have these facial expressions that showed how passionate she was about speaking. So I imagine when she would take the podium when she was a suffragist and going in Pennsylvania, particularly in York County, Mm. fighting and trying to get the men to vote for, I believe it was called Amendment 1, so that women would have the right to vote. And Mm. it didn't pass. It Mm. would be some years later that... um, the amendment would be ratified to the U.S. Constitution. But then she would continue, as many Black women did and still do, which is to hold those people that they vote for accountable. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of what we see now when we know that Black women have this power in voting and to influence, uh, that work was done by women like Ida B. Wells, who was part of the club women's movement also, and Alice Dunbar Nelson, and all of these women whose names Mm -hmm. we just simply do not know, but they were there making demands, these gloved women with their hats on and and nicely dressed. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That was part of their respectability politics. That's what they they were um, fighting for. Well, and you know, that is activism in itself, because up until that point, they were used to seeing black women as the least of the least, subservient and dressed in whatever rags that, you know, were given to them and just every aspect of their life, just even just who they are, who how they were defined in this country to be property and to see a black woman and I love seeing the pictures of that era to see a black woman dressed with gloves, with, you know, the fashion. Because so many times we think about colorism and just the, the trauma of enslavement that wrought some division in our culture. I mean, it's just a, it's what happened. We know this. But we don't think of and we, we make all these distinctions about black elite versus you know, the common folk and some of the issues that came forth even in writing, like Zora Neale Hurston, she wrote about the common folk and then she got some pushback because she wrote in dialect versus, you know, proper English or whatever. But we don't even think about the fact that a black woman dressed in like high society is in and of itself resistance and activism because it's saying that 
I am worthy, you know, of the finer things that you have withheld and that you have gained at my expense and at the expense of my body and at the expense of my people. But just a black woman stepping into a room with a gown on, with, you know, with with the gloves, with, you know, just all of that, how in and of itself is not... I'm trying to be like you. It's I'm defining myself and I demand respect and I am presenting myself in, a, in an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And it's yes, really and powerful. Yeah. They, they were certainly aware of that. And they, they are the mothers of what would become black sororities. Um, Mary Church Terrell, as well as Alice Dunbar Nelson, were honorary members of Delta Sigma Theta sorority, of which I am a member. All right. So, um, and it was because of the work that they were doing in these areas. That is so powerful. And so let's talk about your next, your other book that's coming out, See Me Naked, Black Women Defining Pleasure During the Interwar Era. Tell us about it. Yeah. So during this 10-year journey of writing about Alice Dunbar Nelson and really seeing how much she gave of herself for the advancement of the race, I began to wonder what it would look like if Black women did what they wanted to do, how did they define themselves within respectability or in resistance to respectability and not think very much about the race if they didn't put the race first. But if the race happened to benefit from the practices of these women, then great. So I would begin to really think about what it meant to look at Black women in pleasure. How was I going to define pleasure? And that was one of the challenges of this text. And doing that, that meant that I had to think about women who did exactly that, that they defined themselves not with the race in mind, but they were putting forward what they wanted for themselves. And so I looked at Lena Horne, the beautiful the talented Lena Horne and Moms Mabley, a comedian who was yeah. too often overlooked, but she opened up doors. I think um, the the uh, marvelous Mrs. Ma- Mrs. Ma- Maisel is back on um, Prime. I think it, it it just came back for the third season. But uh, Wanda Sykes does a little bit of uh, a cameo appearance as Moms Mabley. So we began to understand Moms Mabley as being this this historical figure when it comes to women being comedians. Yes, and. I also look at Yolanda Du Bois, who was the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois, very well-known and respected intellectual, and Memphis Minnie, who was a country a, a country blues singer who was born in the New Orleans area, but she would make her way to Bill Street in Memphis at a particular time. And That's then, my hometown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Memphis. That's my hometown. Well, I always have to. I always have to include the South, and so I'm always yes. connected because I'm a Southern girl. So I'm always interested in how the South connects to some of um, our larger movements. Absolutely. But so yeah, so these four women, and they were these voyeuristic subjects 
of people like Langston Hughes, who mm-hmm. loves Black women and, and is so inspired and motivated by Black women. We see this in his literature, but in his only known novel, there could be another one that I just don't know about, Not Without Laughter. Mm-hmm. He gives homage to the Black blues woman yes. in that novel. So I had a lot of fun writing this. It was something that I was also, I ended up finishing up while I was doing the pandemic and in isolation, the first year of the pandemic. So it's a fun book. And I encourage people to look at those women, to to pull up Moms Mabley and listen to her and laugh, to dance with Lena Horne in films like uh, Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather. It's just a fun book. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting subject because the world has such a huge problem with black women as sexual beings or self-pleasuring, like us caring for and entertaining and doing the things that we want to do that exist outside of objectification. There is such a a resistance to us owning ourselves. And we still feel that in 2022. We felt that during the presidency of Barack Obama and how they attacked First Lady Michelle. Just even her bare arms were such a tremendous offense. I've seen situations where a woman's red shoes, you know, were uh, are an offense or red lipstick on a black a dark-skinned Black woman. It's just amazing that how far out we are from enslavement, that Black female bodies still pose a threat, and that even though we define the culture that everyone mimics, even, you know, other other sexual identities, I mean, many, many cultures draw from the Black female experience and mimic the Black female experience. Um, They do stereotypes and all kinds of stuff, people profiting from the Black female experience, even purchasing body parts to look like Black women, but Black women in and of ourselves, when we own ourselves and when we define ourselves, it's an offense. Yeah, these were women who love their black selves. I mean, they they really did. And Lena Horne is humble mm-hmm. and talking about herself and her abilities. But we know that Lena Horne was thought of as a sex symbol. Yeah. Moms Mabley, who was a same-sex lover, <laughs> presents herself as... Uh, <laughs> In relation to these old men, you know, she her her well-known jokes were um, I can't stand no old men. So Mm -hmm. um, but we also know that she had a very hard time as a child and there were sexual violations. So how she presents herself as this sexy old woman, uh, (laughs) which grows Mm -hmm. over time. This this image of her because she becomes more famous the older she gets. Right. So that she even presents herself unapologetically is a term that we tend to use to talk about certain figures of the 21st century unapologetically. (laughs) It's not new. It's not. um, You know, and that Langston Hughes, who observed Black life and loved Black people, Mm -hmm. saw such beauty in Black women. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to include him just to sort of look at, at Black life through his perspective and to just really think about how is this man 
how does he look at black women with such respect mm-hmm. and, and celebration of black women? So, you know, and looking at that particular time, of course, that's a time where where generations are or two separated from slavery. But we know that those effects are still there and they still are now. Yeah. Yeah. But these women, like many Memphis, who's talking about, you know, come on over and this is what I'm going to do to you mm-hmm, <laughs> in mm-hmm. her blue songs. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and these places where women should not be, according to some members of society, well, she's right. there anyway. And, and men highly respected her. So, um, <laughs> yes, you know, indeed. I just had so much fun because. I wanted to present a swath of women uh, uh, from diverse perspectives who define pleasure their own way. It's also about self-definition. I love that. Yeah, so I have been trying to form this into a real question, but I guess it's a reflection that I just will pose and kind of let you go where you want with it. In Ida B. Wells' autobiography, she points out to a little bit of a tension that existed at that time, a little bit of a debate within the Black community over to what degree should Black elites paint a positive picture of Black respectability versus defending some of the, in particular, for Ida B. Wells, it was like the lynchings that were happening. That A lot of times the, the lynchings that were happening were, uh, there was a propaganda around them that painted the black victims as being criminal or rapists or all those things. And Ida B. Wells uncovers that that, in, in most cases, was just made up. It was just untrue. So then for the black elites who were reflecting on, and I, I know Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois kind of debated back and forth about to what degree do we kind of just write off all the the aspects of the black community that are just painted in such a bad light that we almost separate ourselves from that in order to try to paint a positive portrait of black life over here? Or to what degree do we maybe sacrifice some of our own respectability to go and defend the black community who is being painted in such a bad light? Like that tension between do we fight for our own respectability in order to move the race forward or do we give some of it up to identify with those who are being lied about and defend them? And so I wonder in that, and even I think the modern parallel, uh, there's I think still in the modern conversation, we could say that some of the same thing still happens with mass incarceration and to what degree, I mean, it's not a popular political position to say we should you know, defend prisoners because they have just a bad picture in the minds of most people. And yet so much of the inequality now is tied to mass incarceration. And so, yeah, how do we engage that? Or what are your thoughts? Or um, how did some of these women maybe think through some of those things? And yeah, just love to hear your reflections on that. Well, certainly there was a debate amongst Black folks during that time. And so there were many debates because Black people are a diverse group. And so, you know, sometimes people question what were the motives of someone like um, Booker T. Washington, who was president of an institution that focused on the industrial education, while there were other Black people who were advocating for Black folks not doing that kind of work, the industrial work, um, farming or such. 
but to do other kinds of things and prepare the black race. Well, we have to remember that Booker T. Washington was in the very rural south of Tuskegee, Alabama, and some of these other folks didn't know very much about the south and farming, and they didn't have to because they were (laughs) in city areas in the north. And so all of those kinds of things in terms of background feeds into these debates because people are bringing different perspectives and different backgrounds into the, and they're bringing them to the table. So Ida B. Wells, who isn't one that has much of a formal education as compared to someone like Alice Dunbar Nelson, uh, she's doing this work in Memphis uh, where where she is uncovering some truths about lynching, which is courageous work for God's sake, because that yes. would be dangerous to do now. Um, and then she eventually, of course, has to leave. But um, the red record stands as a major contribution because it helps us to understand it, it debunks myths about really the black buck is really what she was doing. And so then the question is, who becomes worthy? Well, you have to think of the strategy. Mm -hmm. And so um, what is it that you're trying to achieve? So black newspapers would have, is is really where this, I think, would be sort of fleshed out, that there were black papers that had to make decisions about how they were going to present black folks. And Alice Dunbar Nelson was one of those people that she may say one thing in her diary about how some people got on her nerves and that the quality of the work wasn't very good, but that's not what she would say in the newspaper, okay? Mm. There was already enough stuff out there about Black people being horrible individuals. So it it was really a weighty subject because it needed to be during that time. And it would continue to be during the civil rights movement. Do we deal with people who may have been having um, a black man that was having sex with a white woman? If anybody's seen the film Marshall, this is what comes out in mm-hmm. that in that film. So this was always not just simply about respectability, but it had more to do with the civil rights agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we navigate all of this stuff because we are dealing with hundreds of years of negative perspective about black people. And it's something that I've asked students, I gave them a a little math problem to figure out. And when, when we got to the end of it, what they came to realize is that we have not been experienced freedom in this country of enslaved Africans or in, in descendants of which I am as long as, in this country as we have the history of enslavement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So of course people were still trying to figure it out then and we're still trying to figure it out now. But you said that this may still be a question around people who are in prison today. And I would pull back on that and say that respectability isn't necessarily figured in in the same ways. Because when I think of the work of somebody like Brian Stevenson, for example, yeah. when I think of the work of, of Black Lives Matter, um, mm-hmm. maybe somebody did smoke weed before something happened. Um you know, Devontae Wright, if anyone read, if anyone watched what happened with that, mm-hmm. he may not have been considered respect, respectable a uh, hundred years ago, but now he was a black person 
who was um, murdered by accident. We can, we can debate that, but right. he still received the sympathy of the black community and yes. resources from particular people in the black community. So there has, has definitely been changes about uh, who receives resources and, and who may have been ignored for the sake of advancement a hundred years ago or, or, or 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful response. And yeah, I feel like we've torn down a lot of those walls, the freer that we get in, again, owning ourselves and getting to define and even having youthful indiscretion and how white people don't throw away their their people who have indiscretion. And so why should we? Mm-hmm. Um, and that black dignity should be applicable and universal, regardless of some of the nuance of you know, behavior, because an imperfect black person still deserves justice in all of these situations that, you know, that we're, that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Claudette Colvin, how yeah. she was overlooked, and yet we've covered her story and seen how, how powerful mm-hmm. that story is, but it was, at the time, overlooked because, like, well, she has a mark against her respectability, so we'll mm-hmm. use Rosa Parks instead as, like, a figure person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I think there's, like, attention there that, yeah, it's helpful to hear you Flesh that out, yeah. yeah. So we actually, running short on time, so wanted to, and first of all, I'm just so thankful for you yeah, making the time you. to come. And and before we let you go, just wanted to hear you and invite you to speak directly to our audience members as they listen. Like this has kind of been a conversation between us, but to invite you almost to like turn in your mind's eye towards this audience of people listening to you, mostly white people in our audience, but also we have a diverse audience. And just want to invite you to, to speak to them from your heart. What are some of the things you would want them to take away from this discussion and just ways that you would want to kind of maybe apply some of this to their lives? Yeah, well, I certainly hope that one takeaway is that there is no one Black idea. There's no one Black culture. There's no um, one Black person that's split up into all these um, different bodies of Black people that doesn't (laughs) exist. And so to welcome, celebrate, understand, acknowledge that Black people are a diverse group of people of various backgrounds. Um, Some are first generation from other countries and speak different languages and have different ideas about how the world should be. So um, the Black community doesn't exist. Let me be clear about that. We hear that in the media all the time that there is a black community. I don't. I, what is that? But I think that we also, in order to understand these different perspectives, you have to read wide, widely. You have to. Um, you know, there are so many websites, but I just think about the fact that Miss Magazine put out a list of 2022 reads of marginalized, of people that are considered to be marginalized. So women of color and um, LGBTQ writers are on that list. So go to their website and you'll be able to find that. But certainly Black women reads um, and, and some other sites can give you some more information about places where you can get some... Um, a a kind of syllabus, a list of readings by people of color, but particularly of Black people. So I hope that you'll, that's that's your assignment, and I hope that you will move (laughs) forward in reading, listening to podcasts like this, but definitely please read. It's really important. 
Well, and we want to point people to ways that they can support you. I know your website is Dr. Tara T. Green, and that's D-R-T-A-R-A-T green.com. But what are other some other ways that we can point our listeners to you and support you? Well, um, that's really the best way because when I do things like this, this it, it will be posted there. I am also on Twitter at D-R-T-T-G-R-E-E-N. So that's Dr. T.T. Green. And I am on Instagram. You can follow me there also. T-A-R-A-T dot G-R-E-E-N. And I often retweet you know, things that that are relevant to Black folks, including works that have been written by, um, that are coming out or that have been written or or, um, by Black people, but especially by Black women. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to point, provide all of the resources that you shared in our show notes. And we just really appreciate, I always love being able to speak with Black women on the podcast, and we just have so much to offer, and people don't—they—they—they don't even know. So, thank you so very much for just meeting with us and taking time out of your day. Hope you have a blessed one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Yes, ma'am. Bye, bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support what we do for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing Angela Davis. We'll leave you with this quote from Viola Davis. As black women, we're always given these seemingly devastating experiences. Experiences that could absolutely break us. But what the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the master calls the butterfly. What we do as black women is take the worst situations and create from that point. Thank you.